Let's uh, turn then to John chapter 3 and pick off up essentially where we left off uh, this morning. John chapter 3. And uh, focusing particularly on verse 14. Where we read that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life or eternal life. So the Son of Man must be lifted up, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. Now these words, of course, uh, occur during the meeting between Christ and Nicodemus, one of the most important meetings in many ways, but certainly one of the best-known meetings in the Bible, which gives rise to two of the best-known texts in the Bible. It's in this brief conversation that the words occur, that we looked at in the morning, that unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, or you must be born again. And then again, the words of verse 16, again very well known, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So an important meeting, and important for us to understand. And we saw the background to it in the morning, It occurs during Christ's first visit to Jerusalem at the Feast of the Passover. And he begins to perform the signs which the Old Testament had prophesied that the Messiah would perform. Healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, speech to the dumb, and enabling the lame to walk. All these signs, as we saw before, were signposting to his identity as the true Messiah of God. Now, one of the people who observes him is, of course, Nicodemus. We saw who he was in the morning. A very religious man, a very able man. uh, One of the 70 who ruled the people of Judah. And a Pharisee someone who believes himself to be saved, but thinks a lot about the coming of the kingdom, the coming of the Messiah, and how through the Messiah the world might be saved. So he comes to see the Saviour. He comes by night because he's afraid. Already it's not really safe to meet with Christ in the eyes of the authorities, but he feels that he has to. And he comes to see him about the kingdom, When will the kingdom come? What will be the sign? Is the Messiah here? Could he be the Messiah? And so on. And we saw how Christ uh, surprised him with the response that he gave him. The Lord said essentially that as things stand, Nicodemus, you have no real interest in the kingdom of God. You think you have a right to it, an entitlement to it, In fact, in some ways you think you belong to it anyway, just because you were born in the right house, 
in the right church, you are saved. But the Lord says, not so. You need to be twice born. You need to be born again. In spite of your privileged birth and background, you are not right with God. And what's more, there's nothing you can do of yourself to make yourself right with God. That can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Everything that comes from your flesh will always be flesh. You can produce nothing but what is fleshly and fallen and sinful. Only by the power of the Spirit of God working in your heart can you be made right with God. So Nicodemus, you and everybody else and the rest of the Pharisees and all of you who are interested in me and are interested in my kingdom and interested in God need to realize that you must yourselves, individually, personally and collectively, you must be born again by the power of God. Now, as I mentioned in the morning, Nicodemus was obviously surprised by this response. It's not the kind of conversation he expected to have with the Lord. And he says, how can these things be? Um, It's a very short statement to make, but it says a lot. Because the Lord has essentially overturned everything that he's really always thought. Thought of himself as a believer thought of himself as a man of God, thought that they belonged to the most privileged people in the world, and the last thing he needed was a lesson on how to be saved. But that's effectively what he was getting. And Christ's response to him was, Nicodemus, if, if you don't understand these things, first of all, why not? Because are you a teacher in Israel and you don't know these things? That, of course, tells us that in Christ's judgment, which is always a true judgment, Nicodemus should have known that. Now, I explained to you in the morning that Nicodemus was a teacher of God's word. So, on a Sabbath day, he would stand in a synagogue, as I'm standing before you, he would take a passage of scripture from the law and from the prophets in the Old Testament and he would expound it. And Christ says, this is your calling, this is, this is your job and you don't know the fact that you, along with everyone else, needs to be born again. Sometimes it is remarkable what people who teach in church don't know. Nicodemus didn't know this. It is something he should have known. It's a, it's a fairly fundamental truth running right through the Bible, Old Testament and New, that something drastic needs to happen before any of us can find our way back to God. None of us can by ourselves. We are sinners, all of us, fallen far short of the glory of God and we are under his wrath and condemnation and something fundamental, revolutionary, and utterly drastic needs to take place before we can be right with God again and before we can enter heaven. Now to have a teacher of God's word who does not know that is a serious situation. But that's what you have with Nicodemus. It's a reminder of the low condition into which the church of God had fallen in our Saviour's own day. And of course we hardly need a lesson on that too. 
It's astonishing, as I say, who still occupies a pulpit when they have so little knowledge of the fundamental truths of God's word. But the Saviour says something else too. He says to him in verse 12, and this is more difficult, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? If I've told you earthly things, Nicodemus, and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, the most obvious question to ask about that is, what does the Lord mean by earthly things and heavenly things? Nicodemus hasn't believed earthly things, so... How, the Lord says, can he believe heavenly things? What things? What what things of the earth and what things of heaven? Now, sometimes people interpret this as though Christ is saying, I've told you earthly stories or parables and you don't believe them. So, how then will, I be, will you believe if I, if I tell you deeper or more complicated things than that? Now that can't be what the Lord means. And there's a few reasons for that. First of all, the Lord hasn't spoken any parables. Parables were a teaching device that the Lord adopted halfway through his ministry. And... Although this is counterintuitive, and it's certainly against what many people think, he didn't start to teach in parables to make things easier. In fact, the opposite. He started to teach in parables as a safer course of action. And parables would be understood by those who really searched after the meaning of them, but other people would find that the truth was just hidden from them. That's why you so often found afterwards even the disciples coming to him and saying, Lord, what what does that parable mean? It wasn't meant to make anything easier. It was meant to make it harder to catch himself out, while at the same time conveying the truth to the people. That's why you find in the first half of the Lord's ministry, his teaching is very plain. Read the Sermon on the Mount. It's crystal clear. It's all too clear because it's all too uncomfortable. But it's all very plain. It's much later on that the veil of parables. Interesting stories, all right, but dark parables, which are meant to function as a kind of veil, certainly giving light eventually to those who want the light, but darkness to those who are going to abuse the message. And at this point, the Lord has spoken none, so that's not what he's talking about here. It's something else. What the Lord is contrasting here when he says earthly things and heavenly things is just the things that he's just said to Nicodemus and the things that he's about to tell him. Nicodemus, I've told you about things that belong to the earth here. And if you don't really accept them, then how will you possibly accept it? when I begin to tell you things that belong to heaven. Or to elaborate more fully on that, I've told you, Nicodemus, the things that need to happen to us in this world. 
I've told you that we on this earth are earthly, fallen, sinful creatures. That we need a fundamental spiritual revolution in our souls to understand anything. The heavenly things are the things that need to happen outside of us. Things that originate in heaven, that come down from heaven. The work of Christ. And if you don't accept that that you need a thorough revolution of soul and a thorough change in you, then what sense will it make for me to explain to you what God is doing in heaven? How God is sending his own son? How God is preparing a redemption? How he is establishing a stairway between heaven and earth? If you don't even see your need of all that, then what sense will all that make to you? The earthly things, in other words, are what God does in us by the Holy Spirit. The heavenly things are what God does for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. I've told you one, you're not even at base point. So why tell you the rest? If you don't know you're sick and in need of a new birth, then why should I tell you concerning the work of the Messiah and who he really is and what he must do because you don't even need it. Of course, that implies that to see heavenly things, we need to see earthly things properly, so it is. How does salvation begin? It begins by seeing the reality of you on this earth. You you become conscious that even the law of God written in your own heart is witnessing against you. You are conscious that there is a God. You are convicted of sin. You have a need. These things just belong to you and the word of God inside you and your conscience written in your heart. But you won't get the answer to that anywhere on the earth. You won't find the answer to that anywhere inside your own flesh or inside anybody else's flesh. No answer there. Maybe theories. No answer. To get an answer you have to go up You have to find a message that comes down from above. Something more than the law that's crushing you. Something that will answer the conviction that you have even by nature. That's why nobody becomes a Christian unless they become conscious that they're under God's wrath and curse. If you are not conscious that you are under God's wrath, even tonight that you are condemned already, as Jesus says, that you are actually bound towards hell, unless you're conscious of all that, you're not going to become a Christian. Of course you're not, because why should you? Saved from what? And not only is that just the way it is, that's the way it must be. It's the way it must be. Nobody will really deal with the cross unless they have a reason for the cross. Nobody will embrace a saviour who demands what our saviour demands as Lord and Master unless they know why they need him. But then Christ does a very interesting thing. After saying effectively to Nicodemus, if you haven't moved beyond base one, how can we go to the second base? He then proceeds to tell them what the heavenly things actually are. It sounds as though he's not going to do it. You haven't accepted what I've said. Why say any more? 
But then, lo and behold, he begins to say more. Read again at verse 12. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? But here we go. No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven. That is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In other words, here we have what Nicodemus was asking for. The Lord makes more plain perhaps than we would expect even now at the beginning just what this salvation involves. The Father and the Son in heaven doing all that is necessary to bring salvation to us. Yes, it will involve the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts but it all originates in this wonderful covenant where the Father and the Son are resolving to bring what belongs to heaven down to this earth. And Christ effectively says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, the kingdom of heaven that you're seeking, the kingdom of God, is really bound up with me. First of all, he says, you need to understand who I am. Verse 11 Most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. In other words, when I, Nicodemus, speak to you about heaven, I'm not going by any speculation, not my own, not anybody else's. I know what I'm speaking about. I will reveal the Father to you because I know the Father and I have seen the Father. There will never be another witness in this world like me. Because I didn't ascend up to heaven to find out this information. I didn't even do that. I have come down from heaven bringing this information. Because that is where I belong. That is my permanent residence. That is who I am. As the owner of heaven. Actually the son of God. The only begotten Son of God. Even as I speak to you, I'm still there. Which are astonishing words in verse 13. No one has ascended to heaven to bring this knowledge to you, in other words. But he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. (laughs) Those are remarkable words to us. I don't know how he sounded to Nicodemus. What did Nicodemus make of that? But I'm saying to you, I took with me down from heaven, and by the way, I'm still there. 
still there. Some ancient manuscripts don't contain these last words. And it's easy to see why, because someone copying the scriptures would have thought, well, that's obviously wrong. Let's just delete that. But it's obviously right, not obviously wrong, once we know who this is. The Son of Man who is in heaven. Imagine him saying that. Just as he's speaking there, man to man, can we say? Uh, because that, in a sense, is, of course, it's more than that. It's God man to man. But man to man, he says, I'm telling you this from heaven, and by the way, I'm still there. Some of the older uh, theologians used to, used to say, and I remember this sometimes, um, this was corrected when people were praying in public. People would say that um, our Saviour left heaven um, in order to come and save us. And people would say, you shouldn't say that he left heaven. You should say that he came to the earth, but not that he left heaven. Now that, you, you may say that that seems a bit nitpicky and hair-splitting, but it's not actually... It, it's really a point well worth remembering that our Lord never left anyone. He did come here, but he never left anyone. He was always where he was. Uh, he took on a human nature and came here in human nature, but did not cease to be the second person of the Trinity inhabiting everywhere. It's always worth bearing in mind. He came, but he never left. It's worth thinking about that. For lots of reasons, it's worth thinking about. It's also worth explaining and illustrating a lot more, but that takes me way off my head. And if Nicodemus is wondering at this point, who are you? Who really are you? Well, he makes it very plain. For God, he says in verse 16, so loved the world that he gave me, his only begotten son. That's who I am so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This everlasting life that God gives to the dead, to the dying, is actually bound up with me. And you'll find it by believing in me, because, he says, an event will take place by which I will be lifted up. I will be lifted up in a similar way to the way in which the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up. I will be raised up high and everyone who believes in me, looks to me, even as people looked at the serpent in the wilderness, they shall be saved. Those Nicodemus are the heavenly things that at one level you're not ready to receive, but on another level well, maybe you are. Because that raises the question, why does the Lord go on to say these things after he had just said, I've told you earthly things you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Why then does he tell, you, tell them the heavenly things? Well, friends, I think there are three reasons for that. The first is that although Nicodemus is ignorant, He's not hostile. And there is a difference. You might be ignorant of certain... I don't mean that word in a, in a pejorative way. Yeah? Just there may be some things you don't know. That's, that's what I mean. But it doesn't mean you're hostile. 
Maybe your heart is open. Maybe there are things that you want to know and to find out. The Lord respects that. The humble seeker will never be turned away from the Lord. You can be sure of that. If you are a humble seeker before the Lord, the Lord will answer your questions. Except those that, that arise out of pride and arrogance. So Nicodemus is not hostile. That, that's part of the reason why the Lord goes on to say what he goes on to say. There are other occasions in which the Lord doesn't deal with people at all. You know, sometimes when people are trying to catch him out, he just says, sometimes he says nothing at all. Or he, he answers a question with another question to expose their bad motives or whatever. God is not bound to answer our questions, irrespective of the attitude we have in asking them. I, I touched on that in the morning. Attitude's everything. It's everything. The Lord even tells you as a Christian not to cast your pearls before swine. If, if, if a fool is asking you a question according to his folly, just step back, leave it be, till the heart is right and then deal with the person, till at least the heart is open. Nicodemus is here coming to the light, and the Lord knows that. And that's why in verse 20 we're told that everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But here's Nicodemus. He is coming to the light, so the Lord will let that light shine. He'll speak the truth. The second reason the Lord goes on to speak is this. That perhaps in telling Nicodemus the heavenly things, perhaps the wind will blow and the Spirit's work will work in the heart of Nicodemus because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the <coughs> Word of God. And sometimes when, let's say, let's say a preacher may be speaking to you about something that you haven't really understood before, and perhaps the preacher may feel that, again, this isn't meant to disparage in any way, but the preacher may feel that you're not going to really grasp this because you haven't grasped something else. But lo and behold, God is working. E even as the word is being spoken. You, you grasp the first thing and you grasp the second thing because the Spirit of God is moving. Just as Christ described to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wills. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God just sovereignly lights on a soul and the evidence is there. The illumination, the understanding comes, the conviction. And sometimes you grow quickly. Just like Saul of Tarsus grew very quickly once the light shone into his soul. It's as though the water in the vessels was turned into wine almost in an instant by the Lord. And that's the way that we sometimes preach. Maybe all the time, knowing that it may please God. It may please God even now to convict and to enlighten you in the most important truths that you need to know about yourself and about Christ and his willingness to be your saviour. Or, again, perhaps all that will happen on another day to come. Even if it doesn't happen tonight, 
There's still the possibility that God can take something that was said to you tonight and bless it tomorrow. Or bless it next month. Or bless it next year. Of course, that's no reason for you to live tonight, next month and next year as though God will do it then because you don't know. The one thing you shouldn't gamble with is whether you're going to live or not. I mean, tomorrow is not promised. It actually is not promised. It may be as sure in your mind as the sun itself rising, which, by the way, isn't promised either. But your life is not like that. It, can, it was given and it can be taken at any moment of time by the Lord. But the fact of the matter is that what, what's spoken to you today, which may not resonate with you today, may not grip your heart today, it might not even be fully understood today, but it might be a word that will come back to you sometime to be blessed. I said in the morning that I'm not sure that Nicodemus was converted right this night. He might have been. I tend to think he possibly was. But he was certainly converted before a couple of years were out. And I have no doubt that the words the Lord spoke to him were the means of his conversion. And that's a reason for saying that. And sometimes a preacher, preacher particularly, even as a witnessing Christian you can feel this too, but a preacher particularly feels that what he says may be falling on deaf ears or on a hard heart. So be it. If some of it even sticks in the head, who knows? But the wind may blow at God's appointed time and it bears fruit. And so the Lord speaks to him of the heavenly work of redemption, which he compares in its most essential part to the raising up of the bronze serpent in Moses' day. Now, can I just say a few things in connection with this comparison? Um, Nicodemus knows this story very well. He is himself a preacher of the word in Israel. Um, it's an incident that occurred when Israel wa was passing through the wilderness and as I said they wanted passage through Edom to make the journey shorter. Uh, the Edomites refused the passage so they had to go a roundabout way into a more difficult part of the wilderness and of course the people got discouraged. I'm sure you've noticed how often the people got discouraged in the wilderness and how easily the people got discouraged in the wilderness. And I'm sure you've sometimes wondered how come they got discouraged so often in the wilderness and how come they got discouraged so easily in the wilderness. And then you take a little look at yourself and you become discouraged so often in the wilderness and you become discouraged so easily in the wilderness. Everything that went against them was a calamity and a disaster and it didn't matter how God sorted out the previous situation. Oh, this one, this one's, uh, this one's really bad. And this one can't be sorted out. No food, no water. Well, they'd been, they'd been there before. They'd been there before and the Lord had helped them when there was no food and no water. But oh, this time there's no food and no water. But, but that's us. That's us. There's no need to ask how come Israel were like this because we're like that ourselves. And sad to say they murmured. Murmuring is a weary thing. 
suppose we feel it ourselves when children murmur, um, complaining, no food, no drink, and they said this worthless bread. It's amazing how evil the human heart is really. How these are people, let, let me put it, I don't know how to put it in a way that really brings home the gravity of this, I honestly don't, but they are witnessing a daily miracle whereby God sends them bread from heaven. His gift, symbolizing the word of God, sends them that every single day of life. I'm sure the first day it fell, they were so grateful that God had given them bread from heaven. And now they call it worthless bread. Astonishing. It's astonishing that you can live with a miracle and just take it for granted. It's astonishing that you can live with a miracle and call it nothing and worthless. I wonder if you could even do that with the word of God. Sometimes say, oh, I'm tired of reading the Bible and not getting much from the Bible just now. What? Is that what you said? Did you actually say that thing? They actually put it down and say, oh, I'm not getting anything from it just now. The things we say when we murmur, and that, that's only a little window into this evil, unbelieving heart. It's no wonder the Lord said at various points that they were deserving of being cast away. Of course they were, and so are we too. And this is a serious, serious sin. And the Lord seriously chastises it. He releases serpents into the camp, venomous serpents, with fatal bites. And the result is death. Moses prays, well the people pray, and Moses prays with them and for them, and God provides a way of healing. He tells Moses to make a replica of the serpent, to make it of bronze, and to put it on top of a pole and to raise it up in the midst of the camp. And if the people look at the serpent, then they shall live. That's, that's very obviously a teaching time in the Old Testament. I, I was thinking as I was preparing this of uh, Nicodemus himself standing at the cross as he did. We know he was at the crucifixion because he took charge of embalming the Lord. I was thinking of him standing there watching the Lord lifted, lifted up and how these words would have flooded back into his mind about the Son of Man being lifted up as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. What, what is the Lord teaching by comparing himself with that serpent? Well, first of all, there's an earthly thing. And that earthly thing is the fact that we are played. The agent here is the serpent, the devil. The venom is sin. We've all got it. We've all got it. <coughs> sin is any want of conformity to the law of God or any direct transgression of it. If, if there's any one sin in your life, you're dead. Of course, sin never comes as a single entity anyway. Sin's always a cluster. It's always a package. It appears sometimes as a single thing, but, but it's never alone. 
I mean, I, I've, I've had people say to me in the past, maybe you have too, you know, like Adam sinned once, you know, he, he just took the fruit of the tree and he was deserving of hell for that. But do you think that was his only sin? How many sins are involved in that? The only reason he could stretch out his hand and take the fruit of the tree is because his whole soul had revolted and rebelled against God. That, that's the reason sin is there. It's because you're full of it. Full of it. And, of course, the result of it is that you're dying. You're dying. We speak of people having terminal illnesses. Man, we all have terminal illness. We're all terminally ill. We are dying and going to hell. That's how sick we are. That, that makes our diseases, whatever they be, whether it's motor neuron or cancer or anything like that, I speak with sympathy and with respect, it makes them as nothing. As nothing. In comparison with the fact that we are all terminal, I mean really terminally ill with sin. Dying and going to hell because sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. That's an earthly thing that Nicodemus needs to understand. Forget the church you're born in. Forget your circumcision. Well, I'm only meaning that in a relative sense. These things have their own place. But in terms of justification before God, forget it. Forget it all because you're plagued with sin and it, you need to put it right. And of course the real problem with sin is that it itself blinds you to the reality of what it is. You, you trivialize sin. You minimize sin. And you say, oh, it's a small thing. And God doesn't really care about that. And God's not too concerned about that lie. And God's not too concerned about that little bit of slander. And in fact, he's not too concerned, period. He's not too concerned. You couldn't possibly say that unless you've been totally blinded by it. Unless you're so far down the path that you're just so full of sin. It reminds me of the anorexic who was shown pictures of uh, other anorexic bodies. And this anorexic person was able to identify all these bodies as being seriously anorexic and seriously thin. Including their own body. In a picture without the head. But the minute they stood in front of a mirror, they were fine. Amazing how you could see the body, your own body, as okay one minute and sick the next. Because anorexia blinds you <laughs> to the reality of what you are physically. Sin does that. If you think tonight that your sin is not a real problem, do you know why you think that? Because you're a sinner. Because you're a sinner. It's God's grace and kindness that tells you that it is a huge problem. And it is a huge problem, friends. Our sin is a huge problem. So that's the earthly part of it. The plague. The heavenly part is the cure. The cure is devised by God, of course. Absolutely. Why? Because there is no cure for this on earth. God devises it. He says to Moses, you make a serpent... Make it of bronze, set it up on a pole, and put it in the middle of a camp. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Must? Yes, absolutely must. Even though he's God, this Christ cannot save a sinner any other way. I say that respectfully and reverentially. There is no other way. He must be lifted up in order to save sinners because that's God's plan and that's God's provision. And it is rooted in his own love for sinners because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So it is the love of God that devised a plan which is the only plan possible. But the fact that it is the only plan possible doesn't mean that it's a wonderful plan to be conceived because no one could have conceived of it except God himself. The wonderful mixture of mercy and truth, justice and pardon, holiness and sin, everything, is so brought together in a way that satisfies God and saves man. God devises it. God executes it in the sense, of course, that God sends the Son from heaven. And what ascending that is. Ascending that we should often think of. Not just the Son who came, but the Father who sent. The Father who gave. The Father who gave His own Son. We would not find it comfortable to watch our own son dying and the more holy and the more beautiful our son was the more difficult it is to watch him die but the son comes down and he comes down in order to be lifted up as the serpent was lifted up so must the son of man be lifted up lifted up oh Nicodemus recognizes that expression all right because it essentially means in his mind exaltation Enthronement. And that would put Nicodemus on more comfortable ground. That's the kind of Christ he was looking for. So were most of the people. A king. Oh yes, give us a king. Give us an enthroned Messiah who will stretch out his rod and make our nation great and our people great and make all the Gentiles recognize who we are as the people of God. And come to us and receive from us the gift of the kingdom too. Oh no, the Lord says, that's not the way in which I'm going to be lifted up. Yes, eventually, but not initially. I will be lifted up as the serpent was lifted up on a pole. What? There's a difficulty there, of course. The serpent is a symbol of Satan, is he not? The cursed one. How can we be saved by looking at a symbol of Satan? If, if the serpent is a symbol of Christ, then why is it a serpent? Well, friends, the answer to that lies in the fact that it's a complex type, not a simple one. The key lies in the substance of bronze, which in the scripture symbolizes judgment. The feet of the conquering Christ are bronze, Revelation 1, because he judges the nations as he walks through them. The bronze altar on which sin is judged was bronze. Jeremiah says that when prayers are offered, sometimes the heavens are bronze. In other words, judgment on your prayers, they're not ascending. 
What's being judged when the serpent is made of bronze? <coughs> well, everything that carries sin and guilt, because sin and guilt have to be judged anyway. On the cross, as Jesus is lifted up, the devil is judged. Now is the judgment of this world, now is the prince of this world cast out. The devil's doom, doom is sealed on the cross. Why on the cross? Because it was Christ that was going to seal his doom. That's the way God ordered it, that the devil's judgment is pronounced and finalized by the Son of God himself on the cross. Sin is judged on the cross, absolutely so. The sins of all God's people are judged on the cross. They're dealt with there. Christ paid the price for them every last penny. Not just majority, not 99%, but all of them. The only sins that weren't judged on the cross are the sins that you still carry. Because the Bible says that if you don't believe in Christ, you're condemned already. If you believe, that transfers them. And of course, Christ is judged on the cross too. That's why he's lifted up in the first place. He's cursed. We recoil from using the language, to be honest. Except that scripture uses it. He was made a curse for us, Paul says. Can you really put it that strongly? Well, the apostle did. He was made sin for us. He became a curse for us. So there's a sense in which when you look at the serpent of bronze there, you see Christ judged. You see the devil himself judged. You see sin judged. You see that enormous transaction by which the king and head of the universe puts everything right. In that small window of time, and in that locality in Jerusalem, he puts everything right. And how does it become effective for us? Well, by looking. My time's gone. I apologize. I'm just going to bring this to a close as quickly as I can. How, how does it become effective for us? Well, just by looking at it. God said to Moses that whoever looks at this serpent on the pole shall live. Of course, for that to happen, it had to be visible. <coughs> so the pole was in the midst of the camp. There's a physical correspondence between that and the Lord's crucifixion. I often say to people that if you press the world's landmass together, Jerusalem's in the middle. Jerusalem itself is on a hill. Christ is crucified on a hill on top of that hill. It's a way of saying from the centre of the earth, here it is. Here is my provision for sinners. Wherever they are in the world, at Jerusalem, at this point in time, I am making a provision for sinners. And not only is he physically raised, lifted up, on a hill, on a hill, on a cross, but that is placarded throughout the whole world. You'll remember that it's in the three languages of Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, and it's carried by the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth, where Christ is set forth as a propitiation for our sins. 
And Jesus said, I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. So he's visible. Visible tonight in the proclamation of the word. He is being placarded before you as a means of salvation. It's staggering how much Satan wants to make it invisible and inaudible. He wants the gospel obliterated from the country and he wants nobody to hear it. But it's visible to be looked at. Now, can I just say this in closing? When the Bible says look and when I'm talking to you just now, and when I say to you, look to Christ, we need to understand something that's very straightforward, really. The look isn't a simple um, look of the eye. Let, let me go back to the, to the serpent of the wilderness. You needn't tell me that everybody who actually saw the pole there was healed. That would be absurd because everybody saw the pole. You, you couldn't see a standard lifted up in the middle of the camp. Um, you couldn't miss it. Nobody missed that. The point is that you had to look at it believing. You had to trust God that if you looked at it as the means of salvation for you that you would be healed. Now some didn't. They saw the pole and said that's not going to work for me. I need something more than a pole to deliver me from this. And of course, in the whole camp of Israel, you have a whole swathe of people who are dying. Some of them are, are believing that this pole will be the means of their salvation. Others are not. They're all still sick. Some are going to live, but some are going to die. It just depends on how you look at the pole. The same is true with Christ. You're all hearing this. Let me say to you in conclusion, you're all hearing this message tonight. So in that respect, you're all seeing you're all seeing Jesus Christ crucified as a saviour for your sins. But some of you are looking, some of you are not looking. Some of you are seeing, some of you are really seeing. Some of you are seeing, not seeing at all. Are you believing? Are you trusting? Are you trusting God that if you come tonight and say, Lord have mercy on me for my sins. Cleanse and renew me. And accept and enable me as I take my first steps in following you in discipleship. Are you really believing that God will do that for you? If you are, it's done. If you're not, you won't do it. You won't do it. And the proof of the pudding will always be in the eating. It will be what you do once you walk out the door. Of course it is. That's what tells us who believes and who doesn't. Otherwise, it is simple. Look unto me, all ends of the earth, and be ye saved. Let us pray. O Lord, grant us the grace to see this way plainly and to take it. To put one foot before another step out in the simplicity of faith and to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Bless your meditation upon the truth. Take away anything that may have been inconsistent with it. 
due to our own frailty and infirmity. In the Saviour's precious name. Amen. Our last singing is in Psalm 98. just sing the first three stanzas which again speak of God with his own right hand working victory and salvation for us. The end of verse 2 tells us that he has made his justice to be known in the heathen sight openly and that he has been mindful of grace and truth to the house of Israel and the salvation of our God all ends of the earth. I've now seen the opening three stanzas. Let's stand and sing. <coughs> oh, sing a new song to